0: So if you had been with us last Sunday after church and gone to Ann's Advent study, you may have learned something that probably hasn't occurred to a lot of Christians in America in the 21st century. It's this fact. In all likelihood, Jesus was not born on December 25th. Now... That may come as a surprise to a lot of people because it's the big fiesta that we have. We celebrate it. We spend the whole year working up to it. Some people have to be held back from putting up their Christmas decorations in October. (laughs) They are so looking forward to the Christmas celebration. But the reality is that that's not the day that Jesus was born. Now, for the first three centuries, centuries 1, 2, and 3 A.D., Christians put all of their emphasis on the resurrection, what we celebrate as Easter. But Bishop Julius I, in the 4th century in Rome, decided that there should be a day that the birth of Jesus is celebrated. And Rome had many gods, and one of the gods that they celebrated an awful lot was the sun god and and it just so happened that on the the julian calendar that was in effect back in the fourth century december 25th was the darkest day of the year their winter solstice and so julius decided that the light of the world should shine brightest on the darkest day of the world And so December 25th became the day to celebrate the birth of Christ, the light of our world. Now, and this may have been a direct assault on this notion of worshiping the sun. Um, At the moment that he was doing this, Constantine, who was emperor of Rome, was recognizing that even though all of the Christians We're calling the first day of the week the Lord's Day. His way of countering that was to call it Sun Day in reference to the sun. Interesting tidbit. Constantine would convert to Christianity on his deathbed. So the right God wins with him. But you hear these things and it's easy for us to get a false sense of our faith because we hear about the importance of Roman emperors in dictating what's going on. We hear about the gathering of councils and bishops and scholars gathering in the 4th and 5th century and making decisions that seem to have created the essence of what our Christian faith is. And as a result, that can cause us to really question what's true and what is the agreed-upon answer per men. And we need to get to the heart of this. Because the reality is that scholars gathering in the 4th and 5th century to determine the truth of Christ makes about as much sense as us gathering together right here, presuming that we are all scholars on what took place in 1776, and saying, we will tell the future what happened with the writing of the Declaration of Independence. We might decide that we have given it some level of esteem, we may have decided that we have said that date was significant 250 years after the fact, but the reality is what took place 250 years ago established the truth. It really doesn't matter what we decide. The truth was already decided. The importance was already conveyed on that date. We can proclaim whatever we want, but it stands on its own. Jesus and his birth stand on its own, and it happened. And so as we discuss what people may or may not have said, we need to be able to stand firm on truth, not what man adds to the discussion. And so instead of being up in arms about whether or not Christ was actually born on December 25th, we should instead focus on what Scripture tells us what is true, And what scripture tells us is true is that he was born. That he was God incarnate, made flesh, born of the Virgin Mary. He lived, he led, he taught, he performed miracles. He died on the cross and rose again, conquering sin and death for us. Not man's interpretation, but God's word given to us. And I I say all of those things because... We are called today by John's words to test the spirits. John is not saying, I am giving you a story and I just want you to take it on faith, blind faith. I hate that phrase. What John is saying is, I spent my life with this man. For three years, I walked with him. I sat at the feet of the greatest rabbi ever, to grace the earth and I watched him perform miracles. I watched him to teach profound truth as if he were the author of truth. I watched him die and then I saw where they laid him was empty and then I saw him risen, the Christ. And then I saw him ascend into heaven but then send the promised Holy Spirit into me and my life was transformed. And for the rest of my life, these passing decades, I have lived with God dwelling within me, doing that which God instructed me to do as an eyewitness to who he is. And so John is saying, test the spirits, because I know they're true. Ladies and gentlemen, we are called to test the spirits. We are called to know that our faith is not based on myth or legend, but is based upon truth because when we stand on truth we can be bolder in what we proclaim we need to know it we need to know that this book is not authored by man but is authored by God now God knew that we are a stubborn and stiff-necked people God knew that it would be easy for us to declare that this is nothing more than a bunch of misogynist guys trying to figure out the best way to get women to do what they tell them to do But the reality is, God all along has said, if I'm giving you my word, it's gonna stand out. And there will be ways that you know that this book is unlike any other book that has ever been created. You see, God brought in his prophets. People who would say, and God said this. And I want to talk a little bit about one of them, just to show you how it works. You see, there was this prophet named Isaiah. He's listed as one of the major prophets in Scripture. Uh, We find in his first verse, Isaiah chapter 1, that he prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. For those four kings, that covers a span in time from 791 B.C. to 686 B.C., more than 100 years in the history of Judah. Uzziah reigned for about 50 years of that time, the first of the kings, from 791 to 739. So we're not saying that Isaiah began his time as a prophet at the beginning of Uzziah's reign, just sometime during that 50-year span ending sometime in the time of Hezekiah. So he had at least 50 years to be a prophet. That time period is important because what was going on in Israel at that time, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, northern tribes, southern tribes, northern tribe of Israel, southern tribes of Judah. And during that time when he was writing, the Assyrians had risen to power And the Assyrians were coming and they had laid siege to the northern kingdoms. And they got as far as laying siege to Jerusalem. So when Isaiah is prophesying, the major world threat is Assyria. And yet, during this writing, which, by the way, is about 80 years before the southern kingdom, Judah and Jerusalem, becomes a vassal state of the Babylonians, who have yet to rise to prominence, 90 years before Jerusalem is conquered and the Southerners are sent into exile, he's writing all these things. But he writes beyond just what happens with the Babylonians who haven't yet come to be. He writes of a king who is to come, one who... In the aftermath of Jerusalem being conquered, the temple being destroyed, the city and neighboring towns lying in ruin, he writes of a king who will order the reconstruction of Jerusalem. 150 years before it happens, Isaiah writes this, chapter 44, verse 28, who says of Cyrus... He is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let the foundations be laid. Chapter 45, verse one. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue the nations before him and strip kings of their armor. I gave you that range when Isaiah was prophesying sometime between 791 and 686 BC, King Cyrus in 539 BC with the Medo-Persian Empire, conquers Babylon. And in conquering Babylon, he then is told of this prophecy made by Isaiah. And he is so compelled by it that he says, that's me. I want to honor the guy that said I was going to rise to power and do all of this. And so Israelites go back, go to Jerusalem, rebuild the city, rebuild the temple. God using a prophet to speak 150 years into the future about a king who hadn't been born yet alone named. Who would fulfill his prophecy exactly. God saying, I'm going to foretell And then I'm going to show, test the spirits on this. Isaiah does more than talk about the coming of a future king who would rebuild Jerusalem named Cyrus. He talks about a greater king. One who would bring redemption to the world. One who would be the Messiah, the one to come. Isaiah 7.14 says this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign... A virgin will be with child and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, God with us. God spoke through other prophets as well. He spoke through the prophet Jeremiah and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. He would speak through Micah. He would declare, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor gives birth and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. God speaking through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, through Micah, always saying, test the spirits on this. I'm gonna tell you what's to come. Will you have the patience to wait and see if it's fulfilled? And yet, centuries after these statements are proclaimed, 700 to 400 years after these prophets have spoken, we see one born of a virgin in the town of Bethlehem, one who is God with us. Those of you that know me well know that I have a passion for apologetics. Apologetics for being able to explain my faith, 1 Peter three fifteen tells us that we should always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that we have. We are called to worship God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our minds, which means, dare I say, we should use reason to explain our faith. We should know what we stand upon. And we should know that God, again and again and again, declares factual bits about the life of the one who is to come. And he does that so that when this child is born in Bethlehem, there can be no doubt, no mistake, that he is the promised Messiah, the one that God sent to redeem the world. John tells us, test the spirits if you want to know the truth of God. If you want to know that you have every right to worship the God in spirit and in truth, test him. See what he has declared and then see how he has fulfilled his promises. John knew all of this because he lived it. He knew the truth of who Jesus was just as strongly as you will be able to say in truth, you were worshiping in church this morning because it was personal for him. There was no question about it. And so he could easily say, anyone who says that Jesus wasn't God in flesh is the Antichrist. They tell lies. They speak of what they know not. And they lead you astray. John invites us to have a relationship, yes, based on faith, but also based on truth. And the truth is, December 25th, we celebrate The day, it may have been some other day, but we celebrate on the December 25th that Christ was born, born of a virgin, born to live a sinless life so that he could die a death that only he could die. In fact, I think another man who knew the truth about Jesus, a fellow named Paul, wrote these words when he was writing to Titus. He said, At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Test the spirits, friends. Test them. Test them all you want, because there isn't a test that you can put before Jesus that he will not pass because he is God, he is our Lord and Savior, he is the author of truth. You cannot put anything past him, and he will stand firm, and he will be exactly who he declares himself to be, the author of life. This Christmas, celebrate that truth. Rejoice in it and know that there is no test that we can fail if we are in Christ Jesus. He came to die so that we might live. Embrace that truth now and forevermore. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.